Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian from the Farm Bureau International Air Show. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, a Farm Bureau recap. But first, we met with Tom Jones, the president of Northrop Grumman's aeronautics systems sector. That is one of the nation's most important makers of combat aircraft with a key role on the F-35 program, as well as the prime contractor of the B-21 bomber and the ground-based strategic deterrent program that aims to recapitalize America's land-based ICBM force now composed of the Minuteman 3, the aging Minuteman 3 missile. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra intelligence and communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, and we are a Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow is sponsored by Farnborough International. Here's our conversation with Tom Jones. Tom, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it, especially given how busy you are. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to, you know, one of the things that we heard, we were both at the RAF Global Air Chiefs uh, Conference, and one of the things that we've been hearing, and indeed, whether it's coming from General Brown, the chief, or Secretary Kendall, uh, is speed, 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 and why we have to move faster. And I think that that urgency has been kicked into higher gear, uh, obviously because of Russia's Ukraine invasion. From your standpoint, as one of the most important contractors, what is the key to getting that speed, whether for facilitization, for people? What are the kind of investments we have to make in order to be able to get that speed? Because I'm not going to press you at all on NGAD because I know you can't discuss it, but the Next Generation Air Dominance Program is not brand new. We've already been working that for some time with building block technologies. Talk to us from your standpoint about what the keys to speed are and right speed and and the best possible outcomes. Okay, so I I think, and I'm not going to talk about any particular program, but just development programs in general. And this background comes not just from airplanes, but as we were talking before you started recording, kind of across a a variety of different technology parts of the defense industry. I think the first element really comes in requirements simplicity. Um, those programs I've worked on that fielded capabilities the fastest were usually the ones that had the, you know, the thinnest set of requirements documents. It got down to the essentials. In many cases, it left things that, um, in other acquisitions, might have been overly specified by the technical, you know, oversight authority which constrained the trade space and left the contractor not having the ability to really go, okay, if you really just care about, let's say, endurance and weapons capacity, and I can trade off all of these other factors to get the key performance you want, the you know technical performance measures, if you will, that need to be optimized, that enables you to you know, really narrow down on a design that can verge a lot easier. The second element, again, goes to requirements, and that's requirement stability. So don't change the requirements a lot as we go through it. Start the program, build it to the requirements it was bid to, uh, incorporate open architecture, absolutely, because no one wants to buy something that's not upgradable, but as much as you can, the requirements the system was bid to, lock those in, build it to that with open architecture, and then as you start delivering the system, you can build the capabilities in later. 
And then really the, the last one I would say is funding stability and that I would say the onus is on both the contractor and on our government customers, right? From a contractor perspective, do what you said you're going to do. Execute the program, as you said. If you're able to execute the program, that's going to give confidence. You're less likely to have funding taken away. But from the government as well, understanding that that continuity of funding is really essential to keeping the wheels of the development program going, um, I think are key to being able to field new capabilities quickly. So it's requirements, requirements, and stability. Right? It's, requirements simplicity, requirements stability, funding stability. But how much faster can we go, right? I mean, there's a lot of discussion about, hey, we need to accelerate these programs. You've been working B21 successfully uh, so far. Very, you know, it still remains a top secret program, so um, I know you can't, there's very little you can say about it. But how is it we can move some of these programs much faster? Do you notice a change, and what are some of the other subtle elements that have to go into this, or even big elements that have to go into it, to generate that kind of speed I think people want, almost a World War II or Cold War-like speed, where you guys were able to develop really cutting-edge capabilities in, in a year? Yeah, so I, I think that B21 is an excellent example of a program that's had requirements stability and funding stability. So those two things I, I think hold and are part of the success. I think another part of the success of that program and something that's going to need to be baked in in the future to be successful is this whole concept of digital engineering and the digital thread from concept all the way through to the factory floor. Uh, as we've applied that in a number of different programs, we've applied in B21, we're applying in the GBSD program, uh, which is another part of the nuclear triad. Um, you know, we've seen the ability to really take things and in a traditional program like we're around when I first started out in the industry, you'd find out in the initial build, you'd find out in integration and test, you'd find out in lab testing, we're able to move that discovery to the left. And that's really, I mean, if, if you look at programs, you can design stuff pretty fast, depending on the material complexity and the build complexity, that might add to the length. Uh, usually where you get a lot is of added time is either requirements churn and the change that comes with that, which we talked about before, or it's the discovery of you know first-time systems and going out there and you're discovering things. So as we improve the fidelity of these digital models and move those left, we move that discovery left. Another thing I think is really exciting is the ability to, you know, so the contractor can shrink so much time out. We have the DTOT and certification phase that comes at the end of a lot of major aircraft and other programs for that matter as well, right? So looking at digital model-based requirements verification to drastically reduce the test space that needs to be gone through in DTOT, having our digital tools generate the artifacts that are required for certification, reducing time out of that timeline, I think is another way that we can you know, rapidly transition articles to the field. Uh, do you, you've been in the industry for decades, do you notice that things are actually starting to move faster? I think they are, yeah. I mean, I, I think B21 is an excellent example, and again, there's not a lot I can say about it, but um, you know, I've been in industry for 30 years, I've never seen anything like it in, in terms of the speed with which we've been able to get you know, the articles that are in flow that are there now and, and the successes we've had on that program, I think. And that, again, is one of those where it's, 
it's the digital engineering technology. It's, of course, I've got a great team of engineers and program managers that are working on it, but it's also the relationship with the customer and the stability with which they manage to maintain the management of that program. One of the big challenges um, is in order to be able to build replenish stocks, right? I mean, uh, there's a question about um, NATO standardization has been very important to that. Everybody uses common artillery rounds, for example, so that means France or Germany or England or the United States can send rounds, for example, to Ukraine. But the biggest challenge is we have depleted a lot of our important uh, elements of our arsenal, and actually you could look at other elements of the arsenal and our magazines that are not as deep. And uh, General Brown, uh, the Air Force chief, talked about integrated by design, about how we have to take a different approach with our allies and partners, have a diversity of systems, but, but a better ability to cross-connect what different allies bring, perhaps even a modular approach to weapons development. From your standpoint, as you listen to the chief, what was going through your head in terms of how you think industry can solve the, the question that he's asking? It was kind of tied in with uh, Justin, who also spoke at the conference that you and I were at, where he talked about looking at the UK Air Force, for instance, which is heavy in fixed-wing ISR, and really the UK is one of the few countries that has the pointy-nose legacy to go out and work and design fighters, and he posed kind of a rhetorical question, should we divest of that ISR capability, let other, you know, other countries uh, pick up that part of the coalition work and focus on that. So I guess when I heard that integrated by design, I was thinking really of what does the coalition force structure looks like look like? You know, we know we know that we need fixed wing ISR. Fixed wing ISR is being utilized by NATO right now. One of our platforms is, you know, working on the eastern flank of NATO, the NATO AGS system. Um, but you know, it is is that in the long run do countries like the United States and the UK take some of their force structure they have there, and the US is already divesting the global hawks, right? And do we now say that's something that the coalition needs to pick up? Well, so that, I really looked at it from that perspective. In terms of the depleted um, you know, weapon stocks and how, how we can fill the arsenal faster, um, that's a complex question that I'll be honest with you, I haven't thought all the way through uh, it's difficult when you look at the lead time of materials, really. Uh, figuring out some way of understanding, and if you think you're going to have the possibility of depleting it, maybe having the long lead in store someplace. I think um, some of the things get expensive, too, right? If I end a production run on something and I want to pick it up, how much stuff has gone DMS, and how good is your DMS management program been? Those are all things that make it hard. I know you want to say, how, how do you go and make it simpler? And I'm just telling you all the reasons it's hard. Uh, again, I think some, some combination of carrying inventories of critical build parts so you can shorten the critical path of starting manufacturing lines up. And I think the more we can go to this, um, the word's slipping me now, uh, determinate manufacturing, manufacturing without tools, right? Because that's another, read the, uh, was it The Arsenal of Democracy? Was that the book that came out a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, that's right. It was a great book. Yeah, it was awesome. I love that book. Uh, it was the, uh, it was the startup was getting all the tooling set up and getting the processes set up, right? So if there's some way we could reduce the tooling 
And again, this is where we go back to digital, digital factories. Right now, our programs that are just in development, we digitally model the factory at the same time we're actually doing the design. So as we design the parts, we're understanding how the factory layout goes. So, you know, anything we can do to shorten tooling setup time, reduce the amount of tooling, reduce long lead material, I think would would benefit that problem. But Franklin deserves a lot more study than me thinking extemporaneously here to give you a really good answer. But those are just some thoughts on it. And, and is there room in, in, in that for allies and partners in figuring out how we can divide labor, for example? Um, you know, hey, the J Japanese are good at this, they should be supplying this so that there is greater surge capacity, that you're using a global industrial base as opposed to just a corporate or an American one. Yeah, I think definitely there is. Um, I think coming down to standards, the ability to distribute digital models, and, and, and this is a, another key thing with your supply base, it, it's interesting that, you know, I've seen where we've come up with a specific design for something with specific tooling instructions for how we want something made. We run into problems on, you know, the schedule of something. We go to the supplier and they go, okay, well, let me get this strong. And here, don't do this, do that, don't do this, do that. Change this spec and we can take this much time out of that schedule. That actually varies from supplier to supplier for the same part because they have different tooling, they have different industrial processes. So I think, you know, uh, again, looking at startup, the ability to, again, uh, go, in a, go to a space where we can exchange digital data with suppliers easier, we can allow them feedback in the design loop, I think would go a long ways to doing that, and that's both domestically within the U.S. and internationally. Um, let me ask you uh, two uh, well, last questions. One is, um, inflation has been a challenge. It's now at 9.1%. Uh, it has a manpower impact. Uh, pretty much every commodity has been going up in price, including some of the things that you hold most dear, like chips and other sorts of things, even though you guys have a lot of secure foundry uh, advantage maybe the commercial industry doesn't have. Um, how is that impacting you? How are you mitigating it? And at what point do you have to go back to the government and say, listen, man, we, we need some kind of redress uh, here because you are on long-term contracts. But at a certain point, there are clauses that trigger, right? Give us a sense on, on, the, on the, the magnitude of the challenge, mitigating it, and, and how we have to deal with it maybe if this is a, a prolonged bout, which is what some folks fear. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think having discussions with customers right now about inflation makes sense. The long cycle of government contracts makes it kind of interesting, right? Because in many cases we have long-term buying agreements with our suppliers, so we're not at financial risk. But our suppliers, who might not have built everything up front, they have problems with it. You know, in other cases maybe we're in that window. In other cases we're negotiating with the government, and we come back and that's hey, the price for this has just gone up, right? So it it it's not. The business cycle we're in makes the consequences of inflation uh, more difficult to, you know, exactly put your finger on than, say, a commercial production line that is just running full steam or, you know, commercial home uh, building or things like that that see the influences of the spot market immediately. But, you know, I, I think I think we do need to look at depending on how long inflation goes, working proactively with the government. And I, I believe that they 
are working actually to, to make sure that they can include economic protection clauses and things like that in programs going forward because, uh, you know, the, it's imperative that the government gets a good deal for their money. I'm a patriot. That's why I'm in this business, right? But it's also imperative that our customer has a healthy industrial base, and if we're paying the price of inflation, we can't. You know, but I, I'd say right now, as as a company and as a sector, we're doing a good job. I think is man, at managing that. Uh, last question: um, Everybody in the world is drawing lessons from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and indeed, uh, learning lessons that potentially hold the United States and its allies in better stead. For example, God forbid, if there's a China scenario, as you're. You're somebody who has a reputation for being able to look 5, 10, 15, and indeed Northrop, even beyond that. I, I remember when you guys were talking about cyber well before anybody else in the industry really was talking about it. Um, and you guys, I should note for our audience, remain one of our, our cyber coverage sponsors. What do you see, Tom? What are the lessons you're drawing? And how is that shaping what kind of capabilities and what kind of company your sector has to be to address those needs as you look? again, 5, 10, 15 years downstream? So we, we're constantly looking because of the life cycle of our business out, you know, 10 years plus. Because, I mean, even in the go-fast world you're saying we're going to, it takes a while to design and build an air aircraft. Uh, if I look at what I just said, the big megatrends that we're going towards, I think much more unmanned, and you heard me talk about unmanned, autonomous, how we're going to incorporate that into the force structure. I don't think it's going to be a flip a light switch and there's going to be unmanned wingmen there. It's complex. It's complex having machines operate autonomously in close proximity to humans. It just is, right? So it's going to take a while to get there, but that's the trend that we're on. I personally foresee a, a ongoing requirement for what I'd call a, a regionalized, persistent, ISR capability, but how do you do that now in a more highly contested environment, right? And maybe that's disaggregated systems, maybe it's more unmanned systems. I don't know exactly where it's going, but I think figuring out how to do that is is key. So, you know, I, I think um, the, those are the big megatrends that we're looking at and trying to figure out, you know, how we build a future set of solutions for our customer based on us seeing them go that way. Tom, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Hope you have a, a great air show and look forward to talking again soon. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you very much. We'll see you. And joining us now is Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, for his take on uh, the Farnborough Air Show on this last day or the last public day of this gathering. Tomorrow is uh, the day when the kids come by in order to inspire them. Ron, thanks so very much for joining us. Really love having you on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here, Roger. Thanks. An absolute pleasure, and I want to congratulate you. You're a member uh, of our team. Uh, as some of our audience now know, we won uh, the Best Digital Submission Award at the annual Aerospace uh, Media Awards, uh, and it was a true honor to, uh, to be honored uh, by uh, such an august uh, organization and also uh, against the extraordinary uh, competition. We were up against a lot of very, very talented folks in that room. Uh, Sash Tusa of Agency Partners was there. 
Uh, and and really, the show we're talking about is our Sunday show where you, uh, Sash, and Richard Abalafia of uh, the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy join us. Um, you know, I had a chance to thank Sash that night. I had a chance to thank uh, Richard in person. So I'm now thanking you. Thanks very, very much for being part of a program uh, that has really become, a, you know, a go-to for so many people in the audience. Uh, and, and we're just honored that, you know, you play a role each week for, uh, you know, take the time to join us each week. So thanks very much, Ron. Yeah, Michael, like I've said, it's it's always a pleasure. And it's uh, generally speaking, one of the highlights of my weekend. So so thanks and congratulations. Uh, it's, uh, I think, you know, well-deserved. Yeah, it's, it's really terrific. And I apologize to the audience. My voice is about to completely uh, give out. So um, what, Ron, walk us through what some of the takeaways from the week were, um, you know, a lot of messaging, obviously the first time in four years that the, uh, this great air show convened, uh, in person, a little bit less flying. So not as, uh, not as, not as noisy. Walk us through what you picked up in, uh, talking to a lot of the senior most executives across the industry, commercial and defense. Kind of a handful of observations. I'd say first order activity at the show broadly was pretty tepid. Um, you know, there was expectations for, um, I think, uh, more order activity. Uh, maybe that got spoiled a little bit by the timing of uh, Airbus's announcement of the big big China order. Uh, we all knew that Delta was happening. Um, outside of that, it was uh, a pretty slow show for, for for order activity. I think another point that jumped out at me, um, and you know, we've talked a lot about this on, on the podcast in the past, is really no one in, in the industry right now is is happy with Boeing. Uh, not customers, not suppliers, not investors, um, but everybody's pushing. Um, for them to get the the max 10 out for fear of you know an airbus monopoly in, in that middle market segment a thing that came up time and time again in our conversations with suppliers was the supply chain uh and the the one point of, of weakness and and this was a weakness before covid and just sort of like so many things uh, before and after covid covid really kind of shed a light on, on weaknesses um, and strengths for that matter but in this case a weakness castings and forging um, they still remain an issue and um, pretty much everybody we spoke to is expecting them to be an issue for several years to come uh, electronics in the supply chain aren't getting any worse they're not getting much better but they're not getting much worse where it really does seem like castings and forgings are in a worse spot uh, ember air seems like they're really really close to launching their next generation turboprop um, I kind of think that they shouldn't call it a next generation uh, turboprop, but they should call it a first generation open fan. Um, so, so we'll see, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that, if that happens, uh, later this year or maybe early next year, but they're, they're super close. Um, you know, on the max 10, it's, it's pretty much do or die for Boeing. I mean, I was surprised that it, we came across this, this point of view in, in many different conversations that, um, you know, that not having the optionality to go to a bigger aircraft, aircraft if you're a max eight or nine customer really, really will put that program at a disadvantage. And, and we've talked about it, but, it, you know, it, it was just interesting to hear it kind of outside of the, the circles we, we traffic in um, on an everyday basis. And that, that was a very, very strong view. Um, and the, the other thing that I thought was interesting, kind of outside of the, the suppliers who are really beholden to castings and forgings, many folks in the supply chain are very comfortable with Airbus going to higher rates, um, you know, in the short term, potentially to the mid sixties and um, this view of getting to the 75 that they're, they're very comfortable with it. And if you look at kind of how things could play out, um, you know, if, if Airbus were to get to those levels and you look at the market share stuff, it, it actually might be, might be really, really doable. 
Um, and maybe changing gears, just just a just a moment on to defense. You know, you know, defense defense is back, and, and Europe is spending more on defense equipment. Um, you know, the Czech order for or potential order for F 35s uh, over uh, uh, Saab Gripens, um, I think is is a big deal. I mean, as we discussed in the podcast before, F thirty five really does seem to be playing out as a a major deterrent system for for NATO and NATO aligned countries. Uh, and then one other, I think, interesting thing that, that we noticed was, I mean, there was a lot of talk about um, uh, environmental sustainability, you know, SAF, 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 and sustainable aviation fuel seemed to be sort of like the buzzword of the day, a little bit about hydrogen. But the thing that you kind of peel back the onion that I thought was a little more interesting is you're starting to see some of these, these technology-oriented um, things, eVTOL, you know, boom with their supersonic aircraft are now becoming a little bit more aligned with the defense community. Now, I, I found it fascinating that, you know, there's a, you know, some sort of agreement going on between, you know, boom and Northrop and Northrop potentially looking at uh, the, the boom aircraft as a platform to do, maybe do some things for, for defense. But um, that I, I thought that was, that was kind of interesting, but I would say those are probably the, the biggest points that jumped out at me. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to be uh, discussing this in greater depth uh, on uh, Sunday show, of course, uh, when all of us convene uh, together for the first time since the show. And I just want to point out to our audience that the Czech Air Force operates the Gripen uh, and Saab has made about, if memory serves, around 270 of those airplanes at this point. Right. I mean, so the expectation certainly the Swedes had was to try to get to that next generation, the Grip and E, uh, which is uh, the new, you know, more advanced version of, of, of the jet. Let me ask you one last uh, quick question because some folks are, are, are not going to be, are not going to be able to wait till Sunday. Uh, European Central Bank uh, surprised markets by raising rates. What did you guys make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, this inflation that is um, being maybe stickier and um, you know, worse than many people thought it would be. Um, you know, it, you know, it came in hot. It's hot everywhere right now. Um, really, and, and, really. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. It was yeah. hot. It is. Uh, and you know that. And I think the fear is that unless you take reasonably strong action, it's it's hard to put the inflation back back in in the bottle, if you will. Uh, and from the the European point of view, that their difficulties are a little bit different than what's going on in North America because of the the energy costs. Um, the energy inflation in Europe is is is, is much more um, of an issue than it is in the U.S. Um, so it's you know it it, it was a surprise. Um, we'll see what um, the Fed in the U.S. does. I mean, folks now are talking about uh, the Fed in the U.S. raising by 100 basis points, which would be that's a big move. Um, so we'll we'll see what happens. But um, containing inflation. Um, is is trickier than than many people think because it gets built into expectations. So you have to start beating back expectations, and that's that's tough. And and it really comes back to Ivaga. You know, you know who six months from now is expecting to have a lower grocery bill than they are today, um, right. and so on and so forth. And it it's 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 tricky. But uh, I think that's one of the key issues that's going to be um, focused on in in markets as we go into the second half of the year and into next year. Ron, thanks so very much uh, for uh, joining us. It was great to see you uh, and looking forward to our conversation on Sunday. Thanks so very much. Yeah, it's uh, always a pleasure, Mark.